0: Welcome to Line of Sight. My name is Don Heider. I'm the Executive Director of the Markle Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University.
1: And I'm Bridget Helms, Executive Director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship also at Santa Clara University. And today we are so thrilled to have with us, Joita Mukherjee. Joita is a climate finance professional who is advising climate finance funds and multilateral development banks on their efforts to mobilize capital for low carbon development in emerging markets. Until very recently, she led partner engagement and strategy for climate finance in the blended finance department at the International Finance Corporation, also known as IFC. In that role, she managed over $700 million in concessional donor funds to invest in climate change, mitigation and adaptation projects, and to support advisory services. Prior to this role, Joita led IFC's advisory services for sustainable business in the South Asia region that focused on clean energy access, energy efficiency, climate-smart agriculture, and renewable energy. Before joining IFC, Joita worked on privatization, financial sector reform, and microfinance at the World Bank. She also managed the World Bank's social entrepreneurship program, something related to Miller Center's work called the Development Marketplace that funded innovative business models to deliver essential services to the bottom of the pyramid households. So, Joita, welcome. So great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Bridget. Awesome. Well, listen, you know, maybe you can help unpack this for us. Why was there so much focus? And energy going into the COP 26, and maybe you can explain what is the COP 26?
2: What's all this fuss about? Sure. So, just for the um, for somebody who is relatively new to climate change, for all this terminology, COP uh, just refers to Conference of Parties. So, ever since scientists have been ringing the alarm bell on climate change, uh, uh, sort of in the in the nineties countries came together and said, okay, this is a global problem and we have to do something. So we are going to organize ourselves around this thing that they call conference of parties, which is essentially a meeting of all the leaders of the country uh, countries to come to an agreement about how we can uh, help mitigate uh, climate change globally. So that's what's commonly referred to conference of parties. And, and the number 26 means that this was the 26th meeting of of this conference. Um, Now, the reason there was so much focus on this uh, one, the COP26 is because back in 2015, what's commonly referred to as the Paris Agreement, um, where countries finally agreed, they actually signed a formal treaty that said, we are going to limit our emissions and we are going to get to a pathway to limit emissions by a certain period of time. Some countries said 2020, some countries said 2030, some countries said 2050, and so on and so forth. So in the Paris Agreement, all countries agreed to limit uh, their emissions and do something about climate change. And this COP, COP26, when wars, when all countries had to present their plan to do that, each country had to say, this is what we're doing. This is how you're going to measure us against what we're saying. Um, and this is our commitment to limit emissions or to get to net zero. So that's why there was so much focus, because this is where, you know, people were really putting the cards on the table and saying this is what we're doing. And it was very important to see that. Uh, particularly from the bigger emitting countries, you know, some of the richer countries um, like the U.S., Western Europe, and China, of course, and India. So that's why this COP was was very very important because it it was a make or break. We, the world would know whether we're going to be able to limit uh, global warming to a certain Celsius point where the Earth systems can still sustain itself, or whether we're going to you know, blow through that. We didn't make it to the 1.5 degree ceiling. If you if you look at all the plants put together, um, they they kind of go over that threshold. So that's not the not so great news. The other not so great news was um countries like Australia and India refused to phase out their coal-fired power plants. Saying that this was necessary for their development and, and progress, so there was there were some downsides to it. having said that, I would say on the whole, this cop made me actually me personally I felt more hopeful than I have ever felt uh working in climate uh, on climate issues you know for the last fifteen years. Um, I felt that most countries had pretty legitimate and good plans, very realistic plans. Some of them were very dramatic plans. The UK in particular showed a lot of leadership. Uh, They are going to completely decarbonize their electricity sector by 2030. That's in 10 years. Um, and, And that's a big economy. And if they can do it, it really sets the mark for lots of other people. And it's entirely possible with all the technologies that exist today. The U.S. showed a lot of leadership um, and this was a very dramatic turnaround for the U.S., of course, given the last administration had pulled the U.S. out of the agreement. So with the the passage of the infrastructure bill here and um, hopefully the Build Back Better bill as well, if the climate elements can be preserved, that is going to be the most dramatic shift Um, for for the U.S. in terms of everything from energy efficiency to appliance efficiency to um, the retirement of coal-fired power plants to the building of renewables and offshore, it's going to be very, very dramatic. and, And that's very hopeful. Also very hopeful was what China, I mean, China's playing a very serious game at this point. They agreed not to fund any coal-fired power plants overseas. They did not, um, you know, agree to not putting up any in within China. However, practically speaking, China has really reached the tipping point where they're starting to make very dramatic uh, shifts towards wind and and even solar to some extent. Now, they're not going to get there all the way, but Their rhetoric is a little worse than their bite, I would say, on 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 clean energy. Um, They're also seeing this as a big business opportunity for them all all over here in Southeast Asia. Um, You know, and they want to be kind of the leaders in in the sector. So everything's pulling in the right direction. Um, So those are some of the big, um, big hopeful signs. Moreover, Typically, what happens is that every five years are, is when things are verified. Oh, you know, have you done this? Have you? They have now agreed to annual verifications. All countries agreed to annual verifications about whether they're on their on the track um, for net zero. And so that was also, I think, a, a more hopeful sign. And finally, sorry, one more thing, which to me is 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 very very uh, useful which is there was a lot of focus, and this was actually a lot of leadership, I must say, from from the U.S. and the Biden administration. There was a lot of leadership in looking at greenhouse gases other than carbon dioxide. So there are other greenhouse gases like methane, black carbon, that uh, are more short-lived. They don't live as long as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but can cause even more short-term global warming. And so it was... Uh, A very historic treaty, actually, between the U.S. and China to limit methane emissions. And the U.S. and China are some of the bigger consumers of oil and gas. uh, And so with the two of them making that treaty, it's really going to have knock-on effects for other countries to, to come into line. Um, and I, I think that can also, you know, be very, very dramatic and and, and quite meaningful.
0: As I was reading about this year's uh, meeting, one of the, you know, and I always am looking at everything through an ethics lens. One of the interesting issues for for me came out in this idea that, you know, that some of the countries were making, uh, a, you know, to me, what was a, a fairly valid argument, which is the The West, the more developed countries, U.S., much of Europe, should be held to a different standard than countries who are just sort of getting their feet under them in terms of development, you know, trying to raise the standard of living for so many people, trying to just feed people and get people to a basic subsistence level, that there should be sort of a different standard given our ability now, that's not an issue for much of the West. And so we should be sort of leading the way. And and to sort of judge all countries by the same set of standards probably isn't fair. You know, it's a fairness issue. You go along with that kind of thinking?
2: Yeah, I I do go along with that kind of thinking. The the agreements generally talk about Differentiated responsibilities. So you often when you read these uh, the COP agreements, they, they have this phrase in there which is about differentiated responsibilities. And that's what it's getting to the heart of is uh you know, why penalize a Malawi uh whose carbon footprint is you know one thousandth time a China or or an in India or, or, or the US? Um so and so that I think people are aware. Uh, And they have tried to make allowances for that. Um, There will be. So that's why often the discussion around uh, the COP and these things, people refer to net zero. So it's because some countries will really bring dramatically bring down their carbon emissions. Some countries are, you know, have the license, if you will, to create carbon emissions, the impact has to be net zero. And so that's typically what net zero refers to. It it incorporates this idea of, of, you know, social uh, inequality and a license for people who are still growing to to get there. Having said that, to some extent, because this was my bread and butter at, at IFC where I was working, we were quite focused on enabling emerging countries to leapfrog technologies as well. So, you know, if you have a cleaner and actually typically more local um, source of energy rather than having to import oil and gas from somewhere else, then we would encourage them to, to do that. So it's a little bit of both.
1: Yeah, I've always thought that it seemed a little bit unfair, you know, now that you've already developed by trashing the environment. Right. <laughs> We're turn around and tell all the rest of the countries that don't do what we did.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, that. So, thanks for clearing
2: that up. Sorry, uh, Bridget. <laughs> there's another aspect where this plays in, and I, if you've, you know, a lot of what you'll be hearing that the <clears throat> disagreements, especially when it comes to India and, and some of these other BRIC countries, you know, the South Africans and, uh, and the Indians of the world, is that they're, they're saying, fine, you rich countries put all the carbon up there in the atmosphere, and you're telling us we have to go through this more costly route, these more costlier technologies. So you pay for it now, please. And that's what's typically referred to climate finance, right? So the rich countries have also said, OK, we are asking you to do something a little bit more difficult. So, you know, we will be willing to pool, our, pool some money and make this money available to you to, you know, adopt these more expensive technologies. So there's a lot of controversy around that, but there is a whole field of climate finance where rich countries are pooling their money and through different kind of either, either bilateral or multilateral climate funds are financing you know, renewable energy projects or any energy efficiency work or, you know, those kinds of stuff in emerging markets. Yeah, that seems a little bit
1: more fair. Can, can I ask you something about, um, you mentioned methane. And, um, you know, I've, uh, as, as you know, uh, just this year, I became a vegan. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons was because of, what I learned about the impact, especially of cattle, but also, you know, all all kinds of animal husbandry practices or animal raising practices, farming, ranching, whatnot, on the environment. And it really surprised me. Was there any kind of conversation about that at the COP? Or in general, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, so
2: at the COP, certainly. Uh, I mean, uh, by far, of course, <clears throat> electricity generation and transportation are by far the two largest sources of carbon emissions but yes absolutely the industrial animal husbandry is is certainly an issue and given <clears throat> how much of the global population consumes beef you know it it is it is actually an issue of global proportions the amount of methane that is generated from from cows it's not it's not an insignificant amount so <clears throat> there's all kinds of innovations going on in the sector, everything from scientists trying to uh, give cows uh, different kinds of feeds so they don't have so much gas, so they don't create so much methane in the first place, um, to everything, like you said, uh, consumers making choices to reduce their, their beef consumption by going vegetarian or vegan, Um So all of that is available to people. And I think all of that is welcome. Um, I think, you know, there is a lot of room for reducing uh, on the consumption end, on the consumer end, even if people switch from beef to other meats, poultry or fish or um, even lamb or goat, for example. Even that itself will be very dramatic. Just nobody, not no other animal produces as much methane as cows, basically. So even if you just eat less red meat and eat some other kind of meat, you actually will have a very dramatic impact at an individual level.
0: This is one of those issues I think that uh, people um, tend to kind of get very discouraged about. Um, mm-hmm. How how do you keep hope and what would you tell people to do to not just sort of throw up their hands and say, it's just too big and overwhelming. There's nothing I can do.
2: Yeah. Um, I just wanted to clarify, Don, you're not talking about the methane issue. You're talking about the larger climate issue. Correct. Of itself. Yeah. Um, it is, um, you know, and it, it's scary also. Sometimes people don't want to know how scary it is. So, so there's a little bit of a shutdown, kind of this flight response. Um I mean, I think for me personally, I, I what motivates me certainly to keep working in, in this area is having children and knowing how the world is going to look like for them and their kids. Um, and wanting to be able to do something about that so they don't have such a difficult life and environment. To face, And so that's my motivation. And I think for a lot of people, that's probably would be their their motivation. That's very powerful motivation. And in terms of things to do, I would say it sort of depends on whether you want to do make changes in your own personal life, in your own personal capacity, or if you want to do something, uh, you know, that impacts at at a different level, at, at your community level, at your district level. You know, at your state level, it's uh, everything from the types of choices Bridget's making, you know, uh, changing diet, maybe driving less, thinking whether you really need to fly. You know, just sort of looking at things and saying, do I really need to do this if I have a certain limit on how much carbon I want to emit? Or, you know, if I just want to be a little bit more responsible, can I bicycle to the grocery store instead of driving to the grocery store? And there's a series of small decisions you can make. Um, you know, do I can I carpool my kids or, you know, do, do each of us have to drive my kids? Can we can we pool and create a, a bus a transport system for the kids from the neighborhood or, or so on and so forth to everything from, you know, uh, raising awareness in your community electing officials that are committed um, you know at the at the district level at the community level and of course at the state and federal level that are committed and serious about doing something for climate and increasingly as as you know and you know all of you live in California um, the impacts what we thought were impacts were going to be in fifty years are actually more imminent. If anything, the climate scientists had been less pessimistic. You know, they they had tried. They had looked at what's what's come to pass in terms of water stress in California, or or you know the wildfires and so on are happening a little bit earlier than than scientists had originally thought. So clearly, it means that there there are tipping points within ecosystems, and when those are breached, you know it, things happen very very quickly. Um, and therefore, the importance of, of adaptation now is almost as important as mitigation. So climate change is to some extent already upon us. And so we need leaders and policy that are now going to help communities adapt to the changing climate. So whether it's water stress or you know increasingly strong winds and hurricanes and storms, Um, all the infrastructure has to be built around that. We have to rethink how we're building buildings, how we're building cities, how we're looking at drainage systems, um, and so on and so forth. So it also matters who our leaders are and whether they're going to invest in communities to to make these changes because, you know, it's got to be done. Sorry, very long-winded, but I hope I I (laughs) was able to run the gamut between personal and then also... (laughs)
1: That's great. Actually, I have a just kind of a simple question that might be interesting to some some people because, you know, the climate field has so much jargon. I guess all of our fields, all of our fields have jargon. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And you started to kind of get into it. But maybe it would be interesting just if you could just define mitigation and adaptation, because often in the climate world, people talk about these two things. Yeah. Two separate things and maybe kind of give examples. You already started to do that, but give some examples of what that might
2: mean. Sure, sure. Mitigation is just to reduce or eliminate the emissions of greenhouse gases. So all these gases that go up into the atmosphere and create a blanket trapping heat in the Earth's surface. Uh, So that's carbon dioxide, that's methane. Those are the two big ones. And there's other smaller um, uh, nitrous, and there's there's a bunch of other uh, uh, CHFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, which used to be in air conditioning systems. Uh, So there's a bunch of these kinds of gases uh, that are called greenhouse gases. And so mitigation just means reducing the amount or eliminating totally the emissions of these into the atmosphere, the release of these things into the atmosphere. Adaptation means uh, how you adapt the way you are responding to a climate that's already changing. In, in the case of a farmer, the, the rain patterns are changing. So you're gonna start changing the kinds of crops that you're growing. Your crop patterns are gonna change. Uh, the types of pests that were, for example, right now, malaria used to be a tropical disease, but we're seeing more and more it's getting into the temperate zone as the climate's getting warmer and mosquitoes are able to move up latitude-wise to, to more northern northern places and, and live there. Um, so you're going to have, uh, so that's an adaptation element. You know, now you you may need to spray for malaria, you know, in, in places that you never thought of before. You may need to put ceiling fans or air conditioning in in places like Austria and Germany that, that people never needed, you know, cooling systems in the summer. That's an adaptive uh, technique. So adaptation is simply the response um, of animals and, and humans to climate change. So those are the two big jargons in the climate world.
1: Yeah, you know, when we think about the work that we do, the most immediate impact on poor, low-income, marginalized people is uh, what's already happening, right? True. And so we often talk about resilience, climate resilience, Correct. how to build climate resilience among those people who are disproportionately affected by the climate crisis, yet have very little to do with instigating it to begin with, kind of going back to Don's uh, point. I'm just You're wondering, um, what do you see a role for social entrepreneurship in addressing
2: or combating climate change somehow? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in two ways, right? Uh, so social entrepreneurs are innovators by nature. So, you know, they will come up with systems, processes, maybe even materials, technologies uh, that are more climate friendly. And because they tend to work uh, with their local communities, they usually come up with solutions that are fit for purpose for the kind of communities that they work in. So rather than taking something very high tech, you know, they, they, something may be very high tech, but it's still made and sourced from materials and the talent you know, that's available locally. So I, I think, you know, the democratization, if you will, of um, climate mitigation or climate adaptation technologies, you know, social entrepreneurs are a very big source of that. So not only can they come up with innovations on, on some of these types of, of things, but they, they are also good points of uh, dissemination because, again, they work locally, they bring in local voices, they have fit-for-purpose business models and technologies, and they can spread it, you know, at the level of where people who really need um, these uh, solutions, um, you know, that they can disseminate it and and spread it out more widely. So I, I feel like their work is just critical. And I must say one of the nice things, we are seeing uh, is there's a partnership increasingly that's coming up between some large corporations or medium-sized corporations and social entrepreneurs who are working with local communities. So one example I wanna talk about is oil palm in Indonesia, which is a very big cause of deforestation in Indonesia. And we are finding companies like Unilever, who buy a lot of oil palm every year uh, for everything we use from detergents to soaps to, you know, everything we we use in our house. Um, They are putting in a very responsible uh, supply chain for how they're sourcing oil palm. And they're working with some social entrepreneurs on the ground in Indonesia who are working with communities to uh, cut down deforestation, reforest deforested land uh, to kind of keep a balance between uh, the plantation and the and the jungles with the want some of the jungles to grow back and some of the peatlands to come back in Indonesia, which are huge carbon sinks for the world. Um, so we are starting to see some early uh, partnerships of, of this kind between smaller social entrepreneurship type companies who have modeled very well how to reach the communities and how to work with them together with the interests of a larger corporation that really wants to tighten up its supply chain uh, and make sure the way, where they're sourcing some of their products from uh, is, is being done in a responsible manner. So hopefully we see more of those. But yeah, social entrepreneurs have a good, have a great role and places like Miller Center can be you know, a great contributor to helping these entrepreneurs grow perhaps brokering some of these relationships um, because you have a, a, an oversight of what's going on in the larger world and you may be able to match make some of your entrepreneurs with some of these other efforts.
1: So I was recently asked to help design a session on climate resilience for an upcoming conference. And I was just, it, it, the conference is aimed towards college students, university students, and I was talking about the kind of thing you're talking about, all the hope that social entrepreneurship can bring to the conversation, and they said, oh, yeah, that should work really well in our session on (laughs) eco-depression. What? But apparently, that's a thing, eco-depression among Mm. uh, young people. The Gen Z? Yeah. 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 And it kind of goes back to what you were saying about it feels like this huge, you know, problem. Yeah. I talk about this also with my son who's 20, almost 21. I'm sure you're talking about it with your kids. Mm -hmm. Um, What are we to make of this eco depression? I mean, is it a real thing? Uh, Number one. And number two, how can we, what can we do to help young people kind of cope with the stress? related yeah. to this, as, as well as feel empowered to
2: take action. I think it's a real thing. I actually, I, I mean, I'm not Gen Z. I'm much, much older than Gen Z. But when you work on climate change, you really kind of are fearful for the future of the world. And, and you're watching people very slowly do something about a train that's coming Head on, so I I can't empathize with that, and I I think it's a real thing. But I'll I'll let it uh, certainly. It's a little bit maybe um, for our generation, maybe how we felt about nuclear war. I don't know. You know, we had we used to have these drills of you know hiding beneath our desks and stuff like that. You kind of feel like there's something hanging that can, and that that takes a psychological toll. it, It affects. Now, uh, the question is, what do you do about it? I believe it's real uh, and they know, you know, young people know that it's certainly going to happen within their lifetime and they're going to have to cope with, you know, whatever impacts climate change brings. And so to them, I, I don't have any, you know, magic potion or anything like that. I, I just say, Um, you know, you are, you are on, on the front line. So my kids always say, you know, like you guys messed it up and now we have to clean up after you. And I'm like, yeah, you know, what can, what can I say? We broke it. And uh, you guys are, uh, the good thing is you guys are, you know, you have to fight this war. It's a war that at least it's where you're not killing other people, where there is no enemy, there's no bombs, there's no tanks, but it's a war that you're going to, fix things. Um, And so put your mind into that uh, mode about, you know, what is, what can I do? What can I fix? How can I work on this? What kind of contribution I can make? Because that then takes away the feeling of helplessness. You know, you're not sitting there waiting for something to happen to you. You can try to do something about it. And then again, you know, it can be something very little, very, very small and individual or depending on, you know, what you feel empowered to do, run for office or, you know, an, anything in between. Uh, but that's the only advice I can offer is to sort of not be paralyzed by fear, take control of it, look at yourself, think about what you want, what you want to do in this space and then, and then go that way. And great things will come of that, you know, you'll have a butterfly effect. What I'm encouraged by, I saw a headline the other day that Gen Z is joining environmental jobs by the droves. So people are fewer, fewer people from that generation are going into, you know, banking and consulting and much more into something in the environmental space, whether it's hard science or policy or or anything like that. So I'm encouraged by that.
1: Yeah, we're definitely seeing a lot of interest in this in, uh, here at Santa Clara. I mean, the students are deeply interested. And I know that Don and the Marco Center does a lot of work with corporates on ethical issues. And I'm sure this kind of thing comes up all the time about the, uh, the footprint, right?
0: And ESG yeah. is becoming, really, there isn't a corporate CEO in America right now that's not thinking about ESG, E being the environment. And yeah. so... Uh, you know, now some companies are scrambling around trying to make it look like they're doing a great job on ESG, but might not be. But I think mm-hmm. it, other companies are really doing a serious assessment. And um, yeah, and so part of what we're trying to do is help them see how ethics can help them with ESG. But in terms of the environment, there's no doubt that they're going to have to think about their carbon footprint and what impact they're having on the planet.
2: Yeah, it's true. The, I, I guess I should mention that one of the other hopeful signs from COP26 were the number of companies that attended COP26 and made pledges, uh, explicit pledges about what they would do in terms of their um, supply chains and stuff like that. Um, and I think they've for the first time, they've come out very publicly Um you know, with with clear targets so that they can be held accountable. Um, And I think, you know, what young people have done um, all around the globe, they have really taken the fight. I have never seen this this kind of awakening, if you will, in C-suites to say we got to do something about it. Now, I am sure greenwashing will follow. and is there, but it is, again, for young people to keep that up, that activism up, you know, and to be more educated and more sophisticated and know when a company is just greenwashing, whereas, whereas when they're making real progress. Um, so that's that's a big turnaround in corporate America and corporate globally, I would say. Great.
1: Well, Juita, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's been so fascinating to learn more about climate change and COP26. I feel much better informed now than I was uh, just an hour ago. Thank you very much. This has been Line of Sight. I'm Bridget Helms, Executive Director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Santa Clara University.
0: And I'm Don Heider, Executive Director of the Markela Center for Applied Ethics, also at Santa Clara Thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you.